Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, today we come here to receive Your grace. We know that we are miserable sinners, utterly dependent upon Your mercy. We come bankrupt to be enriched. We come empty-handed to have our hands filled. We come torn apart to be mended. We come as the sick to be healed. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us all. Have mercy on our world. It is only because of Your mercy that we are not consumed in Your wrath. Father, we thank You for having mercy on us in Christ Jesus, Your Son, our Savior, Your eternal Son who became incarnate to suffer and die for us, to rise again on the third day, to guarantee us new life and a share in Your new creation. Father, it's in His name that we draw near to You. We thank You for who You are, for all You have done for us, for all You do in us. We thank You for the gifts You continually pour out upon us and the kindness You show to us by the working of Your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, with Your Son and with Your Spirit, meet us here today. Show Yourself as the one true God. Show Yourself as our God, the One who redeems His people, the One who strengthens those who call upon You. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that Your grace would work mightily among us. Father, we are desperately needy people. We need Your grace to work in our lives. We need Your grace to forgive us. We need Your grace in every way. And so work graciously today. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. The great American author Annie Dillard writes about growing up as a member of Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh. She was a very precocious adolescent. She had read widely. And uh, through her studies, she finally concluded that God does not exist. And so as a teenager, she went to meet with her very elderly pastor. And she said to him, I want my name off the roll. I don't believe in God anymore. The pastor said, okay. And Annie Dillard said, well, what, you're not going to try to talk me out of this? And the pastor said, no, uh, Annie, you're way too smart for me. There's no way I could argue you back in. And so she said again, I want my name off the roll. And the pastor said, okay, it's off the roll. And she said, okay, good. And she walked out of the pastor's office, and as she was on her way down the hall, she heard the pastor mutter to himself, she'll be back. And he stopped, turned around, and stormed back into his office and said, what did I hear you say? Oh, just that you'll probably be back, the pastor said. And he looked at him and said, hey, it's my life. I'll live it how I want to live it, and I am not coming back. Well, in... Annie Dillard's memoirs after telling this story. She says, as I write this, I am 48 years old and I am back. She had returned to the church. Her faith in God had been restored. Annie learned that when it comes to the story of us and God, it's not over until God says it's over. And God has a way of bringing back to Himself even those who have sworn, I won't be back. God loves to welcome home prodigals. See, God loves to seek and to save the lost. 
God loves to seek and save sinners. In Jesus, we find a God who seeks sinners, a God who pursues sinners, a God who welcomes sinners, a God who saves sinners. If you are ever running from God, my advice to you is to keep looking over your shoulder because God's probably coming after you. It's very likely. There are a lot of us who are only here this morning because God would not finally let go of you. God would not let go of you. You tried to run from God, but like Annie Dillard, God brought you back. Maybe He brought you back kicking and screaming, but you were caught in the net of His grace. And God dragged you to Himself. He dragged you back into the family. The parable of the prodigal son is a real problem for us. Charles Dickens called it the greatest story ever told. It's certainly one of the uh, favorites of Jesus' parables. It's a story that has changed forever the way we tell stories. But it is not a neat and tidy story. It's really a very disturbing story. There is something deeply troubling about this story. It is so contrary to common sense. It seems so impractical, so unrealistic. It even seems dangerous. Like you could read this story and get the wrong idea. This is not a balanced story by any means. Uh, You may not know this, but there's actually a very similar story in the Buddhist scriptures. Uh, It's told by one of Buddha's senior disciples. It's found in the Lotus Sutra. Uh, Probably any similarities between the story in the Lotus Sutra and in Luke's Gospel are coincidental. The Lotus Sutra comes several centuries later, so if there are any connections between the stories, the the, the movement is from 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 the Bible to the Lotus Sutra, not the other way around. But there's some very interesting parallels here and some interesting contrasts as well. In the Lotus Sutra version, there's a teenage son who takes his father's fortune and runs away from home. And he lives this wild and extravagant life. He wastes all his money in uh, extravagant and wild living. And as always happens, the money finally runs out and he is reduced to begging for a living. Meanwhile, his father has continued to increase in prosperity despite what the son had taken. The uh, father goes on to uh, great prosperity with his business. And one day the father was out with a caravan of his wagons and he saw his son by the side of the road begging. And so the father secretly communicates with his son. Uh, He offers a, a way for his son to come back home. But his son comes back home basically to serve as a janitor. In other words, the son comes back to do what the prodigal son in in Jesus' version of the story was going to suggest to his father that he come back as a servant or as a slave. That's what in the Lotus Sutra version, that's what the father does. He brings his son back in as sort of low man uh, in the uh, operation. But he keeps his son disguised, and so nobody knows that his son has returned home. Uh, This goes on over the years, and... Uh, the son keeps his identity secret. He earns his way up the ladder of the family business. And finally, the father reaches old age. And he gets sick, and he's nearly ready to die. But before he passes away, he gathers to himself the rest of his family. And he gathers to himself his workers. And he reads aloud his will, revealing that his son had returned years earlier and would indeed inherit the family estate. The son had worked his way up from the bottom to the top. Now, that that story, that version of the story, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? 
that's a common sense version of the story, right? That's a realistic version of the story. The father doesn't just receive his son back and restore him right away as if nothing ever happened. The son doesn't throw a big party for his son to announce his homecoming. He makes his son prove himself. He makes the son earn his way back. He makes his son work for it. Now, that's a practical story, is it not? The kind of thing a real-life dad would do, right? The kind of thing a practical father would do. In the Lotus Sutra version of the story, the father is sensible, right? In fact, that's really the striking thing about all three of these stories in Luke's Gospel. It's how unrealistic they are. In Luke 15, Jesus doesn't really tell three parables. He tells one parable in three different ways. It says He told them this parable. Uh, it's a single parable told in three different ways, but each one of them runs completely counter to common sense. Each version of the story Jesus tells is shocking. In the parable of the lost sheep, there are a hundred sheep and one gets lost. And He says, which of you shepherds would not leave the 99 sheep and go looking for the one? Well, the reality is no shepherd would actually do that. It's crazy. That's not how you shepherd. Uh, that's not how you do it. Normally, no shepherd would leave the 99 at risk and in danger to go find the one that had strayed away. In the parable of the lost coin, the woman has ten coins. She loses one. Certainly, it makes sense for her to light her lamp and to sweep the house looking for that lost coin. But what does she do when she finds it? She invites friends and neighbors over to celebrate. Now, who would throw a party to celebrate the recovery of a lost coin? To invite over friends and neighbors and throw a big celebration would cost more money than that coin was worth. So it doesn't seem very smart. It doesn't seem very realistic. It doesn't make sense. No woman would do that, having found her lost coin, then turn around and spend it on a party. The story of the prodigal son is just as shocking. What dad in his right mind would welcome his son back this way with a party like this? The son had wished his father dead. When he asked for his inheritance, that's really what he's saying. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were just already dead. I wish you could already have the stuff that's coming to me. And when the son got his money, he wasted it on wild living. He hits rock bottom. He returns home. But as he comes home, the father doesn't even give him a chance to get his pre-rehearsed repentance speech out. The father has already welcomed him back as if he were a war hero or something. The father restores him completely as if nothing had ever happened, as if he had never done anything wrong. Now, why does Jesus tell this story? He tells us this story because we so desperately need to know this. He wants us to see what God is like. Jesus wants us to see what He is like. He wants us to see how astonishing and shocking and scandalous grace is. He wants us to see the graciousness of grace, the freeness of grace. Who is God? God is the seeking shepherd. God is the searching woman. God is the welcoming Father. And in each case, God rejoices over finding what has been lost. See, nobody else behaves this way. Nobody does this. It doesn't seem practical or sensible. But Jesus says God acts this way. Jesus tells this story so we will see what the free grace of God is really like. 
And indeed, he also wants us to see just how prodigal we all are. But here's the other really shocking and surprising thing about this story that gives us problems, that gives us pause, that we stumble over. The thing is, in this story, there's really not just one prodigal son. There are two prodigal sons. Both sons in the story go astray. They just do so in different ways. Sometimes when we read over this story, we think, well, here's a father who had one good son and one bad son. He's got one rebellious son and one righteous son. You've got the older son who was a good boy and the younger son who was a bad boy. But that's not actually how it works. In reality, both sons are bad. Both sons are alienated from their father just in different ways. The, the, the younger son's alienation is obvious. He wishes his father was dead. He's so alienated from his father. That's what he's doing. Again, we ask for the inheritance. He's saying, drop dead, dad. I'd rather have the stuff than you. His sin is obvious. He is an obvious open, notorious sinner. He wastes his life. He wastes his livelihood on wicked living. But the older brother, while appearing to be a son, is actually a slave. It's more subtle, but he also is alienated from his father. Look at his speech, what he says in verse 29. In anger, he says to his dad, I've been slaving for you all these years. How does he see himself not as a son, but as a slave? I've been slaving for you all these years. He says, I never transgressed your commandment. How does he see himself as righteous and therefore not in need of grace? I've never transgressed your commandment, yet you never gave me a young goat to make merry with my friends. He relates to his father, not as a son, but as a slave. He doesn't have the freedom and love and assurance that ought to come with a father-son relationship. Instead, he has the fear and the anxiety of a master-servant relationship. He claims to be righteous. He claims to not be in need of repentance. And he accuses his father of shortchanging him, of not sharing with him his gifts. He is alienated from his father. Again, there's not one prodigal son in this story. There are two. Two lost sons. And at the end of the story, one of the sons has been restored to sonship, but it's not the son we would have expected. It's the wild and reckless son who has been restored to fellowship with the father. The prim and proper older son, the son who claimed to be righteous, is still a slave. He's still alienated. He's standing outside the party in anger. In this parable, Jesus wants to show us a third way. Not the way of the rebellious son or the self-righteous son, but the way of true sonship. Unlike the sinful prodigal, true sons seek to be obedient. But unlike the slaving older brother, true sons obey out of love. A son obeys not to earn the father's favor or to earn the father's gifts, but to enjoy the father's fellowship. He knows the father's gifts are his. And he obeys because he wants to be like the father and he wants to know the father more deeply. The younger son, when he comes to his senses, was willing to be made a slave, but he gets the full status of a son. The older son looked like a son, but he actually lived as a slave. The younger son wasted everything he had on partying, and then when he gets home, the father says, let's have one more party. 
a forgiveness party, a repentance party, a restoration party. The older son never had a party. He could have had a party, but he refused to receive and enjoy the love and the grace and the gifts of his father. Instead of enjoying and using his father's gifts, instead of enjoying his father's love, he slaves away and then he accuses his father of parsimony and stinginess. But see, here's our problem with the story. The problem we have with the way Jesus tells the story is that when you listen to the words of the older brother, it's hard to think he doesn't have a good point. Have you noticed that? When you listen to the words of the older brother, he has a pretty good point, doesn't he? Isn't there something unfair about this story? I mean, why does the younger son need one more party? Who would think he needs one more party? The father thought he needed one more party. The father doesn't shame the younger son when he comes home. He doesn't punish the younger son. He doesn't make the son earn his way back. There's no restitution. There's no, I told you so. He simply welcomes the prodigal back and throws him a party. Think about this. After the prodigal has been welcomed in, after he's been given the ring and the feast and his honor, the older brother protests. He says to his father, here, I've been slaving away obediently, working for you all these years, and then this son of yours comes home after all these years of wild living, and you don't punish him, you throw a party, you party with him. But don't you think the older brother has a pretty good point? Isn't the older brother being eminently reasonable here? Isn't he the voice of common sense in the story? Did the Pharisees perhaps have a point when they complained about Jesus eating and drinking with sinners? That maybe Jesus was giving some people the wrong idea, the wrong impression? Uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, my understanding is that the play Wicked tells the story of Oz from the perspective of the witch. That, That it really tells the story from the witch's perspective. Maybe somebody should rewrite this parable from the perspective of the older brother. Maybe somebody should rewrite the Gospels from the perspective of the Pharisees. We might find a lot in those works, those retellings of the story, that make a lot of sense to us, that seem pretty commonsensical, realistic. I mean, if you were in the older brother's shoes, might you not say something similar? Might you not raise the same objection? How would you like it if a sibling wasted his share of the family inheritance and then came back home and instead of getting punished or having to make restitution, had a party thrown in his honor? And you know that all the expenses for that party are really coming out of your share of the estate. You'd be thinking, where's the rebuke? Where's the punishment? Shouldn't he at least have to work his way back into dad's favor? How dare he just step in like nothing ever happened, like he never did anything wrong. See, what Jesus is showing us is he's showing us what grace really looks like. Grace always offends. It offends those who don't think they have a need for it. It offends those who minimize their need for it. Grace offends because grace seems to rip to shreds our notions of fairness. It seems to offend our sense of justice. How dare the Father welcome the Son back? How is this 
unfair to the older brother. Consider, again, the triangle of relationships you have here in this story. You know, you have the father and then the two sons. And, you, you know, you can draw lines between each one of them. Triangulate the relationships between the father and his sons and between the brothers. How do they relate? The younger son is alienated from his father because of his overt sin. Because of his rebellion. His rebellion is inexcusable. He's wicked. He's wasteful. But then the father restores that relationship. Indeed, he runs out to meet his son. He runs out to greet him. Something that typically a a Middle Eastern patriarch would not do. But you see, in that, the delight of the father in his reunion with his younger son. He indeed calls it a resurrection. His son was dead and is now alive. His son was lost and now is found. The older son stayed home. He's never left home, never run away, never done anything obviously rebellious. But he's alienated from his father because he's living like a slave in his father's house. He's right there in the house, but he's living like an orphan. He's living like a slave. He's obedient, but it's the obedience of a slave, not a son. So he's alienated from his father. He's also alienated from his brother. He won't join with his father in welcoming home the prodigal. Indeed, when he talks about his brother, he doesn't call him my brother. He says, your son, as if he's disowned his brother. The grace of the father offends his sense of fairness and his sense of justice. He hasn't experienced that grace himself, and so he can't extend that grace to another. The Father says to him, all I have is yours. The Father invites him into the fullness of his riches to enjoy his riches, to enjoy his gifts. The Father has lavished grace on this older son. He shares everything he has with this older son. The older son condemns his brother rather than welcoming him because he doesn't see all the Father has already given to him freely and graciously. So the older brother has contempt for his father. He also has contempt for his younger brother. He holds him in disdain. He despises him. He refuses to see that he is every bit as dependent as his younger brother upon the grace and goodwill and generosity of his father. There's a great line in uh, Moby Dick where Herman Melville's character Ishmael uh, says, Heaven have mercy on us, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all dreadfully cracked in the head and in need of mending. Now, I certainly don't endorse the religious pluralism that is really at the heart of Moby Dick, but that line is exactly right. Indeed, that line sounds like it could have come straight out of Luke's Gospel. We're all cracked in the head. We're all in the same boat, sinking under the weight of our sin, drowning in our sin, unless Jesus in His grace rescues us. The only thing that distinguishes a true son from a prodigal or that distinguishes a Presbyterian from a pagan is grace. We're all cracked in the head. We all desperately need the grace of the Father. And that's why there's never any room in the Father's family for self-righteousness. Never any room for boasting in yourself or despising others. Sometimes this is hard for us. Uh, it's hard, for example, if you grew up in a, in a Christian home. 
and you've never known anything but the gospel and life in the church. You know, you're, you're a cradle to grave Christian or a font to grave Christian. That's great. But you need to understand what's great about that is that it is a wonderful testimony and it's a wonderful testimony not to your righteousness to grow up Christian and to walk with God all your life. That's not a testimony to your own righteousness. It is a testimony to God's grace. And if that's your situation, you need to remember no one is so bad that he can't receive the grace of God and no one is so good that he doesn't need it. Even those who grow up in the church continue to need God's grace. If you're a son who's never left home, so to speak, who's always dwelt with the Father and obeyed the Father, you need to know Jesus gets just as much joy out of an apostate or a prodigal who repents as he does out of a faithful Christian who hardly needs to repent. That's really a point Jesus makes several times along the way, especially in verses 7 and 10 in Luke 15. Not sinning in the first place is just as much due to divine grace as repenting and being forgiven. Persevering in the faith is just as much due to grace as falling away and then being restored. See, it's all of grace. Whether your story is one with very few bumps along the way, or whether your story is a very winding path that finally leads you back to God, either story is a story of grace. You know, there are a lot of people that when they look at this parable, they want to interpret this parable in its original context as a reference to the history of Israel. And I think that's right. Uh, and I think there's no question the prodigal son represents apostate Jews, those tax collectors and prostitutes in Israel who are coming to Jesus, who are flocking to his ministry. Perhaps it all, the, the younger son also represents Gentiles who have been alienated from God, without God and without hope in the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, who are responding and will continue to respond to Jesus. And then the older son, of course, represents Jews who are righteous, who are seeking to live according to the law, but who are living like slaves rather than sons and who despise those sinners who are coming to Jesus to find grace and forgiveness. All of that's true. All of that's true. But I am much more interested in the way this story should shape the life of the church in our present moment. How should this story shape the life of the church right now? Think about this. How does this story apply to the life of the church in the present moment? Some of you have younger brother tendencies. Some of you have older brother tendencies. Some of your stories are more like the younger brother. Some more like the older brother. The reality is you may have both younger and older brother tendencies in your life in different relationships or different situations. The reality is nobody but Jesus is perfectly balanced. No one but Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father as a son at all times. Jesus is perfectly balanced. He lives out sonship perfectly. No one has ever been as inclusive of sinners as Jesus. And no one has ever been as intolerant of sin as Jesus. The parable has lessons for those of us who are more like the younger brother and those of us who are more like the older brother. And the lesson for both kinds of brothers is become like Jesus. Because Jesus is the welcome of the Father and the joy of the Father in flesh. He is the love of the Father incarnate. And He offers Himself to younger brothers and older brothers alike. 
And in offering Himself to us, He promises not only to forgive us and to restore us and reconcile us, He promises to make us like Himself. That's what grace does. Grace forgives our sins and grace makes us like Jesus. And so like Jesus, we learn to obey as sons, not as slaves. And like Jesus, we learn to invite sinners in, to welcome prodigals home, to roll out the red carpet for prodigals just like Jesus. Some of you have younger brother tendencies like the younger brother. You know you've made a mess of things through unwise decisions, through bad habits, through sinful patterns. You've just about wrecked your life at one time or another. And you don't see how you could ever be worthy of the Father's fellowship again. That's constantly your question. How can I be a real Christian? How can I ever be worthy of the Father, of the Father's fellowship? At most, perhaps, you hope to be a slave, a sort of second-class citizen of the kingdom. For you, this story is good news. Flannery O'Connor once said, the whole operation of the church is set up entirely for the sinner, which creates great misunderstanding among the smug. You got that? Flannery O'Connor says the whole ministry of the church, the whole operation of the church is set up for the sinner. The whole ministry of the church is geared towards sinners. The whole ministry of the church is geared towards forgiving sinners and washing sinners and assuring sinners. Everything the church does is for sinners. Baptism is for sinners. The Word is for sinners. The Supper is for sinners. Think about baptism. Baptism is for sinners. The point of baptism is to get cleansed. Cleansing presupposes dirt. If you'd never gotten dirty, you wouldn't need to be washed. But we all came into the church in the same way. Through baptism, it means we were all dirty and needed cleansing. Paul says in Galatians 3 that in baptism we were clothed with Christ. Just as the prodigal was clothed with the robe and the ring, so baptism clothes naked sinners so we can stand before God. The Word is for sinners too. Whenever the Word is proclaimed, whenever the Word is preached, think about what we do in the liturgy each week. We confess our sins and then a word of absolution is pronounced. A promise of forgiveness. The Word is spoken to sinners. That's what the sermon is all about. A word to sinners to bring comfort and renewal. To assure you of God's love for you. That's what the Bible is. It's God's love letter to His people to assure you of His love. Communion is certainly for sinners. Communion is the Father's weekly party for prodigals who are returning home. No, we don't feast on the fattened calf. We feast upon the sacrificial Son. We eat the body and drink the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a party for prodigals, for prodigals who are coming back home. We sing and make music and do the dance of the liturgy every Lord's Day because the Father is inviting prodigals home. He's throwing a party for prodigals. He wants to feast with prodigals. Every Sunday is our opportunity as sinners to join the Father's party. And so don't you ever dare say, I'm not worthy. Because it's not about your worthiness and it never will be. It's about the love of the Father and the grace of the Father shown to you in Jesus. Remember, no good deeds are going to save you and no sins will damn you if only you will trust in Christ. And Jesus can handle all your failures. Even if for you the Christian life seems like three steps forward, two steps back. Jesus is patient. And He's going to keep pursuing you. 
And He's going to keep welcoming you. He's going to keep offering Himself to you. He's going to keep hunting you down to bring you back to Himself. Those with older brother tendencies obviously are also addressed by this story. Those with older brother tendencies need to learn to not be scandalized by the grace God shows to sinners. Ted Tripp asked the question, he says, if you acknowledge that the grace of God is your only hope, then how can you throw condemnation on those in the church who struggle? See, we have to guard ourselves against our inner Pharisee. That inner Pharisee wants to come out and play. That inner Pharisee wants to come out and make judgments about everybody else. Luke 15 opens with Pharisees grumbling because Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. Luke 15 ends with the older brother grumbling because the father eats and drinks with a sinner. Are you okay with God eating and drinking with sinners? Heard one pastor put it this way. He said, you know, we love having Psalm 51 in our Bibles. We just don't want people who actually need it in our congregations. It ought not to be that. Older brothers like Pharisees are scandalized by the grace that welcomes sinners to come as they are. Older brothers like Pharisees look for excuses to not love people, and those excuses aren't that hard to find. Older brothers like Pharisees condemn others as a way of justifying themselves. We've all done this, right? Condemn, uh, we condemn others in our hearts to make ourselves feel more righteous. And Pharisees have this holier-than-thou approach to others. That's actually a phrase, holier than now, that comes from Isaiah 65, which we read this morning. It is very clear in Isaiah 65 that that holier than now posture, the kind of posture the Pharisees were taking towards Jesus, is demise. The Father says to older brother types, come and join the party. Join with Jesus in rolling out the red carpet for sinners. Join in this extravagant and gracious welcome. Join in showing the, 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 the astonishing grace of God in your life. Join in befriending and rebrothering prodigals who are coming home. All the Father has is yours. Rejoice in the grace and mercy that have been lavished on you. Make your life a reflection of the welcoming grace of the Gospel. Make your table a place where the welcoming grace of the Gospel is known. I think this is so important for us because so often, this is sad but true, so often traditional churches like ours committed to historic Christian theology and biblical standards of morality where those things are a big deal for us and they are non-negotiables. So often churches like ours have a really hard time welcoming sinners. We have a really hard time welcoming back the prodigal. The ethos or the culture of our churches makes it difficult. Our churches can become institutionally inhospitable to sinners. When new Christians come in, what happens? New Christians track in dirt. They get dirt in the Father's house. New Christians not going to reach Christian maturity instantaneously. And sometimes older brothers have a hard time with that dirt that gets tracked in. When prodigals come home, those who have strayed away, those who have wandered from the Father and the Father's ways and who have wasted the Father's gifts, when they come back, they bring all kinds of baggage with them. And older brothers have a hard time with that. How can they be accepted back as if they had never done anything wrong? 
The point of the parable is not that we're to be indifferent to sin. The point of the parable is that we should share in the Father's welcoming and patient and gracious love towards sinners. The church should be a safe place for sinners, not because we're okay with sin, but because we know how to deal with sin. It's a safe place for sinners because we can point sinners to the one place where forgiveness can be found. And older brothers need to remember the Father's love is infinite. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not as if the love the Father has for younger brothers somehow subtracts for His love for others in the family. The Father has more than enough love and gifts to go around. Uh, Henry Nouwen, I think his words are fitting here. Uh, Henry Nouwen uh, wrote a beautiful little volume, a, a volume of meditations on Luke 15. It's really a series of meditations on Rembrandt's painting of Luke 15. Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son returning home. And this is how Nowen describes his own older brother tendencies. He reflects on his own older brother tendencies this way. He says, the lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to reach precisely because it is so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. He says, I know from my own life how diligently I have tried to be good, acceptable, likable, and a worthy example for others. There was always the conscious effort to avoid pitfalls of sin and the constant fear of giving in to temptation. But with all of that, there came a seriousness, a moralistic intensity, and even a touch of fanaticism that made it increasingly difficult to feel at home in my father's house. I became less free, less spontaneous, less playful, and others came to see me more and more as somewhat as a somewhat heavy person. You see what Nowen is saying there? He's saying, I became an older brother and I realized I needed to repent just as much as the younger brother. I needed to be reconciled to my father just as much as the younger brothers out there. Jesus invites young and old brothers, younger and older brothers alike to enter into the joy of His Father, to come and join the party, the Father's feast. Jesus' invitation is to us all. Don't stay in the pigsty. The Father invites you home. Why stay in the pigsty when the Father is out searching for you, calling for you to come back home? And don't stand outside the party because there are sinners on the inside. The Father's inviting you in. Come in and join the celebration. My prayer for each of us, my prayer for our church is that as a community of God's people, we would live this way. We would be this kind of church. Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't seem practical. It doesn't seem realistic. It goes against counter, goes against common sense in all kinds of ways. It goes counter to our normal way of doing things. But my prayer for us as a church is that we would be the kind of place where this story can come true. Again and again and again. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that in Jesus, You have rolled out the red carpet for us. In Jesus, You welcome us and You love us for Your Son is Your love and joy in flesh. May His kind of sonship, His kind of filial obedience be reproduced in our lives. May His love for sinners and His welcome towards sinners be reproduced in our lives as well. May we remember that all of us, whether we're a younger brother type 
or an older brother type that all of us are cracked in the head and need mending. All of us desperately need Your grace. It's our only hope. Show us Your mercy, Lord. Shape this church, shape this community by Your mercy. May this be a place where Your mercy is known and proclaimed. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Amen. You may be seated as we feast together. I think it was obvious uh, to all of you that I came to the passage this morning of the prodigal son in Luke 15 with a heavy heart. And there's a reason for that. Uh, And the reason is primarily that I don't think our church has always lived out the story that well. Uh, It's burdened me for quite some time uh, to see it. I don't think Trinity Presbyterian Church has always been a place where the struggling uh, could uh, share their struggles safely. Uh, I've known many in our congregation through the years who have struggled alone uh, with something uh, far longer than they should have, afraid to share it with people in this church body uh, precisely because they didn't know how it would go. They were so afraid of encountering uh, an older brother. And I think that was a fear that had some legitimacy to it. Uh, many of you have prodigals in your family. Uh, we all know prodigals. Uh, and I think that this story in Luke 15 shows us exactly what we ought to be doing. We ought to be the pursuing father. We ought to be the woman who's sweeping the house. We ought to be the shepherd who leads the 99 to go find the one. Uh, we need to make our place. We need to have the kind of culture, the kind of ethos in our church body here uh, where people feel free to share their struggles. Uh, we need to have the kind of church body, the kind of church family where the prodigal can be welcomed home. Uh, I, when I came here almost 12 years ago, that's the kind of church I was hoping to build, to be a part of. And while I think we've made great strides in that, uh, I think we still have long ways to go. And my encouragement to you uh, is to uh, consider these things in your own life and in your family. Uh, find ways to extend the kind of welcome that you see there in Luke 15. Again, it doesn't mean being indifferent to sin. It doesn't mean uh, we don't care. It doesn't mean we give up our... Uh, our, our, our convictions, our commitment to biblical morality. Uh, but after pastoring this church for several years, and in many cases having people uh, only reveal their struggles after uh, many years of, of suffering and silence, uh, I'm convinced we haven't done as good of a job with this as we should have. And that's weighed on me for quite some time. Uh, I think if each of us were honest, if, if you were to ask yourself, uh, have I ever overcome a struggle with sin all on my own, Uh, the answer is going to be consistently no. We only overcome struggles with sin in community, which means we have to have a safe place for sharing those struggles, for finding accountability, for finding encouragement. And again, I don't think our church has always done as good of a job with this as we should have. Uh, So I, I didn't intend this morning's sermon to be any kind of strong rebuke to you, but I do think that this is... Uh, an area of our church life where we need to grow. We want to be a church that lives out the story of the prodigal son, that lives out this parable, but with a happier ending. Without the older brother standing on the outside of the party, on the outside of the feast, but with the older brother coming in to join the younger brother with a glorious reunion of love and forgiveness and fellowship. And that's what this table is designed to be. A place where younger brothers who are coming home can find a welcome and can find the forgiveness of the Lord and a place for older brothers who have been standing outside casting judgment, looking down on others 
can come into the party and offer forgiveness and be reconciled with their younger brothers and with their Let's give thanks. Father, we do indeed give you thanks and praise for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. He is your mercy to us. He is our all in all. Father, may we look to Him. May we trust in Him. May we put our whole hope in Him. May we cast all our burdens upon Him. May we know that He cares for us and loves us. And as we come to this table to feast upon Him by faith, as we partake of the body of Christ together, may we more and more become the body of Christ, manifesting the kind of love Christ has for us to one another. The same reception, the same love, the same acceptance He has shown to us May we show that love to one another, especially those in our midst who are struggling, who are struggling mightily. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.